Coming up today, Matt Burgess advises on how to up your lockdown running game. I examine the latest COVID vaccine progress and Matt Reynolds tackles the UK's big cat mystery. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when US Congress held an antitrust hearing with big tech, grilling the CEOs of Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple with accusations of anti-competitive behaviour and bias. This was also the week when Huawei knocked Samsung from its perch. Analysts believe that the Chinese firm shipped more new phones over the last three months than its South Korean rival. Huawei sold a total of 55.8 million devices, which was a couple of million more than Samsung. And it was finally the week when the UK removed Spain from its travel corridor list, meaning that anyone returning from the country now has to quarantine for 14 days after arrival. That's after Spain saw a surge in cases. It has around 40 cases per 100,000 inhabitants. That's over the last two weeks, compared with the UK's 14.6 infections per 100,000. Bad news for anyone who is planning to go to Spain on holiday or already there. Um, you can still go, but you just have to quarantine on the way back, right? Yeah, including the Transport Minister, Minister Grant Chaps, who, who found himself on holiday and presumably is now hiding out in his house since he has fallen foul of his own rules now. Do you think, I presume this is something we'll probably see a bit more of as well, you know, as the COVID cases are monitored across the continent and across the world, countries, you know, changing the rules over where you're allowed to go and where you're allowed to come back from. Yeah, I think a lot of epidemiologists are saying more or less that assume that kind of anywhere, uh, you know, going abroad is kind of off the cards. But then you look at the travel corridor list, there's a whole bunch of countries on there. You know, you can go to Germany, you can go to the Netherlands, I think you can go to, um, you know, whether, you know, lots of Scandinavia. And there's just this problem, isn't there? It's do you think that there's an acceptable amount of transmission from elsewhere and you want to try and keep the whole, you know, the tourism industry and keep businesses kind of alive by doing that or do you say look it's too much of a risk we clamp down but then how long do you have that situation for let us know if your holiday plans have been disrupted or if you're planning to go abroad are you going to take the risk or are you maybe doing a staycation instead this year podcast at wired.co.uk we love to hear all your stories during this time let's hear some interesting facts matt burgess what have you brought for us this week uh, I've gone for short and sweet this week, um, and it's not a not a particularly cheery fact, um, but Earth now has 46% fewer trees than it did 12,000 years ago. That's it. That's all I've got. So about half the trees it did 12,000 years ago. Who was counting 12,000 years ago? Um, <laughs> that's a good question, but it's probably based on sort of like previous statistical analysis and sort of understanding sort of how many trees there could have been and based on what we can find um, from, I guess, carbon dating and e- evidence like that. Nicely bluffed out. Thanks, Matt. Matt Reynolds, <laughs> what's your fact this week? So I found out, this is from a news story, actually. I found out that microbes can live for 100 million years. So researchers dug up some mud from underneath the Pacific Ocean. I think it's about 
five and a half thousand meters uh, beneath sea level and they found bacteria that had been hibernating there for around a hundred million years they brought it back to the lab and they found that when the bacteria were fed they came back to life so i mean hopefully there's nothing really dangerous and nasty and kind of scary there because that would you know it sounds kind of like the like the, the you know the start to a science fiction movie but pretty awesome that they lived uh, all the way underground for a hundred million years and now they've come back to life that is pretty pretty mad a hundred million years. Gosh, it's a long time to, to hibernate. Yeah, I know. Just just hanging out there. You know, think about what they've missed on. They've probably not seen Breaking Bad. You know, they've, um, you know, really, really missed out on a lot of life. Lots to catch up on. Exactly. <laughs> I've brought an animal fact this week. My favourite kind of fact is an animal fact. Uh, and it is that koalas have fingerprints that look very similar to human fingerprints to the extent that some researchers have warned that theoretically koala fingerprints could be mistaken for human fingerprints at a crime scene. However, this is not known to ever have happened. And there's of course quite a distinction between human hands and koala hands in that koala hands have fingers sort of pointing in different directions to climb trees. So it's maybe unlikely that after lots of examination they could be confused, but I just thought it was interesting because I always thought fingerprints were a rather human trait. Yeah, that that is really interesting. And did koalas have the same number of fingers as humans um might not be a question you know the answer to but um it would be a bit of a giveaway if there was only uh, a, a handprint at a crime scene and it had three koala fingers instead of five human ones or something like that uh i believe they do i haven't I, i'm you're 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 making me doubt myself now but i think they do have the same number of fingers but i think they have sort of three on one side and two on the other that sort of grip like that rather than our sort of four fingers and then opposable thumb the thing is, Vicky, you say that it's never been known to have koala fingerprints at a crime scene, but there are a lot of unsolved crimes out there as well. Could this be the answer? I mean, possibly if you're in Australia, um, it would be, you know, maybe... The, <laughs> well, I don't know, Matt Reynolds, maybe this is relating to your story later. Perhaps there are secret koalas living across the UK. We'll get onto that little teaser of what's to come. We wanted to let you know about a new podcast that our colleagues at the US edition of Wired are launching. They're launching a new podcast this week called Get Wired. Just like the Wired UK podcast, it's all about the news from tomorrow delivered to you today. You can expect trustworthy journalism informed by decades of real understanding of technology. New episodes of Get Wired drop every Monday. Listen and subscribe to Get Wired wherever you get your podcasts. And keep listening and subscribing to the Wired UK podcast too, because you can never have too much Wired in your life. Our first story this week, the big topic of the year, <laughs> COVID vaccines. We're, we all want a vaccine to protect against COVID-19 is the thing that will really help us get out of lockdown and keep the disease under control. And there's lots of vaccines currently in development, more than 100, actually coming up close to 200 now. And now we're starting to get some of the first results from clinical trials, so trials involving humans. We've been taking a look at some of the current front runners in the vaccine race. Now, to be clear, when I say front runner, I'm not suggesting that they're necessarily more effective or better in any way, just that these are further along currently in testing. So as you know, vaccines have to go through phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. Phase one trials test for major safety concerns in a small group of people. 
phase two tests for some indication that the vaccine produces an immune response by looking at things like antibodies and T cells. And phase three trials are the really important ones because they test the vaccine in a large group of people to see if it actually stops getting them from COVID-19, stops them from getting COVID-19, which is, of course, what we all want from a vaccine. So there's obviously these three types of stages. Um, what one are we at now and where are these front runners uh, sort of positioned? So there's lots of vaccines in all stages of development, some of them still preclinical. So um, in animals, lots now in clinical, starting to get into phase one and phase two. And we're starting to see the first vaccines enter or about to enter phase three trials. So that bigger, really crucial kind of final step to see how well they actually work in people. There's a few that um, are sort of leading the race in that in that sense. So one that we've heard a lot about in the UK is uh, a vaccine being developed at the University of Oxford. That's in conjunction with AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company. The government's already ordered 100 million doses of the vaccine. And one of the interesting things actually about COVID-19 vaccines is that different groups are using completely different approaches and technologies to make them. So the Oxford vaccine is what's called a viral vector vaccine. It's based on a chimp adenovirus, which is a virus that causes an illness a bit like the common cold, but in chimpanzees. And that's been modified to contain genetic sequence of the coronavirus spike protein, which is part of the virus thought to play a large role in infecting cells. And so... The point of this is to expose the body to the spike protein without actually exposing it to coronavirus so that it creates an immune response. And then when it comes across the real thing, coronavirus in the future, hopefully it can draw on that immune response and protect you. Um, so here, the chimp adenovirus is, is kind of like a bit of a Trojan horse, one researcher explained it to me, um, for the spike protein of the coronavirus itself. Now, Oxford has reported preliminary phase one and phase two trials uh, induced an immune response and didn't have any major side effects. So that's the first kind of tick box shows some promise. Good news. They're now moving into phase three trials in Brazil and South Africa. And so this was huge news last week when those results from the Oxford study were um, released. And it felt like almost some of the you know, best news we'd had in this coronavirus outbreak. We've been looking for a vaccine forever and it finally felt like, well, here's something that might, you know, be at the beginning of, of, of being an answer. They're not the only ones that are, you know, on this hunt, as you, as you mentioned, Vicky. So, you know, how far ahead are the Oxford team compared to some of the other you know, vaccine groups out there? There are others that are in a similar position. And you're right, Matt, it was big news because it is a really promising step, but it is also still early days so you know this was kind of you know getting that positive information from phase one and phase two trial results is great but in a way it's sort of the first thing that you need to get right like if they had not got good results there you'd kind of have to throw the vaccine away and start again so it's good news but it's the first step on a long journey and there are others that are at a similar stage in development uh, one is chinese company cancino biologics that reported phase two trial results the same week as the Oxford as the Oxford vaccine, and they also showed no major safety concerns and that it invoked an immune response. So equally promising. 
Now, they also use an adenovirus as a viral vector to deliver the coronavirus spike protein, like the Oxford group. But in this case, they're using a human common cold virus. So a similar approach, but a little bit different in the details. So we've got these two approaches, like you said, kind of kind of similar using these adenoviruses uh, and pr- pretty similar stage in terms of their development. There are a couple more, or there's one company in particular, perhaps, is taking an approach that's pretty out of the box. This is like a kind of traditional approach. Um, you know, what, what other methods are different uh, teams using when they come up with their own, with their own vaccine? Yeah, so one that listeners may have heard of is a US company called Moderna. They've been getting quite a lot of press and they're using an innovative approach, which is called mRNA vaccines. Uh, And this is really quite new technology. So mRNA vaccines involve making a synthetic version of the coronavirus spike proteins RNA. So RNA is sort of the genetic instructions that tell cells how to make the protein. And this tricks the body into essentially making the spike protein itself. And that then induces the immune response. So rather than injecting the spike protein into people, you basically inject the RNA, which then makes the spike protein into people to give a really kind of basic idea of it. Um, So this is really new stuff. No RNA vaccine has ever previously been licensed. There's been some kind of start to be developed, uh, but we don't actually use any. Um, And then there's also a much more traditional approach that's being used by the likes of China's Sinovac Biotech. Um, And they're using an inactivated vaccine that consists of virus particles that have been killed or inactivated and so no longer cause infection. So actual coronavirus particles. And in this case, the immune system still recognizes the virus, even though it's inactivated. And so that provokes the immune response that it can then call upon later if the person who's received the vaccine comes into contact with the actual virus in the real world. Um, And that's also moving into phase three trials. So we've got all these kind of different approaches and, and they're quite well represented in terms of the vaccines that are currently going through testing. So why, why do we have so many different approaches? Is it possible to say that sort of like one is better than the other or are these just like different um, ideas and methodologies that could work, but we don't know at this stage? Yeah, at this point, it's definitely not really possible to tell which is better because um, even where we do have published results and they're only just starting to come through, you can't really directly compare them because they can use different doses, different testing methods, different assays to measure the immune response. Um, and so it's hard to kind of put them side by side and do a comparison in that sense. I think, you know, the different approaches is maybe just a result of everyone wanting a COVID vaccine. And so we've got so many different groups of working on one. Um, and as a result of that, they're taking different methods. And, you know, this is a great tactic because we don't know which one is going to end up being the best candidate. So it's, it's really good that we're trying lots of different ways. There's potential advantages and disadvantages to the different technologies. Things like the killed or inactivated vaccine, it's very tried and tested. It's how we make things like the polio vaccine, for example. So that's potentially a positive. But they could also be harder to scale up and create a lot of because it involves making a lot of material. And that's, of course, the next big challenge in this vaccine development uh, race is you know, once we've got one that we're actually confident is safe and works, we actually have to create it in huge quantities and get it to everyone who needs it around the world. 
To take another example, the RNA vaccines that are the much newer approach I mentioned, they obviously don't have that track record because they're, they're very new. So that might you know, potentially present a bit more of, of difficulty when it comes to regulating them and, and figuring out how to do that. But researchers hope that they could be easier and cheaper to scale up as you need much less material. So that could maybe address the actual manufacturing problem better. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of different challenges that still need to be faced around sort of like distribution, manufacturing, sort of uh, obviously the rest of testing and making sure that these work safely in humans um, before you even get to any of that. So do we have um, any sense of when we'll get, and I'm going to use air quotes here and actually do them in sort of real life as well, uh, but when we will get a winner? It's honestly really hard to know and I you know I've been referring to the vaccine race but that's perhaps not the best analogy to use because although we obviously want a vaccine as soon as possible everyone does the one that gets through phase three first may not actually end up being the best we may later find one that's more effective one that's easier to scale one that's cheaper to use or we may even find that different vaccines work better in different geographies or different age groups. It's actually quite likely that we'll end up with more than one vaccine. We also don't know how long immunity from the vaccines will last. And that's a really important point because you don't want to take a vaccine and it for, only to, for it to only last a month or six months. You know, ideally, you want one that lasts a very long time, but at least a year. Um, and so we can't because coronavirus is so new, we, we, we won't know that until people have actually had the vaccine and been out there, um, you know, to see if it sort of wears off, as it were. And so there's lots of different things that we'll have to keep tracking. And it's not the case that as soon as someone makes one that, that seems to be effective, everyone else is just going to down tools. They're still going to be developing theirs. And it may turn out that we, we find one that's better later or a range of vaccines that are useful for, for different people or different purposes. So it's really important that we don't put all our eggs in one basket. Um, and you can see this approach with the UK government, for example, they've ordered doses from different teams that are using different methods. So the Oxford team, but also one group that's using an RNA approach and a couple of other groups as well. Um, and so that's sort of a way of, you know, almost kind of hedging your bets, I guess, and making sure that you know, we do find the right candidate and not necessarily just the fastest. Yeah, it's, it feels like it's going to be the next sort of the, the story that is going to keep continually running for the next few months, years until this happens. And there's going to be a lot of sort of twists and turns with uh, maybe vaccines that uh, candidates that look like they're going to be very positive and then and turn out not to be and sort of then you get to those stages of, um, yeah, actually applying them in the real world, which would be a challenge. But I guess there's a lot, a lot still to come in this. Yeah, I'd say we're really just entering that crucial phase three part now. Um, so we'll be paying close attention to it and uh, updating everyone on the Wired website and here on the podcast. On to our next story now, something a bit different. Matt, cats. Cats. That's right, Vicky. So, I mean, I'm sure our listeners will be aware that every culture has its own mystery animal. So we have the Himalayas, they've got the Yeti. In America, there's Bigfoot, which is like kind of basically a Yeti, but like an American Yeti. Um, we've got the Loch Ness Monster, obviously, in Scotland. Now, in the UK, kind of England more specifically, we've got 
cats. Not you know your normal you know moggy you're like russian blue your you, you standard house cat we're talking something of a slightly bigger more sinister variety mystery animals that are spotted but no one can quite get enough evidence now before i go into these kind of uh, these modern big day uh, you know, modern big cat investigators today I've got a question. Vicky, we were talking about this a couple of days ago. You've, got, you've had your own brush with a, a mystery animal, right? You've got some experience with big cat hunting. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I remember vividly when I was at school, one day we couldn't do cross country because there'd been a reported sighting of a panther. And I, this was in the UK countryside, a very small village. Um, and so, you know, everyone was on the lookout for this big cat on the loose. I, I don't believe it was ever found. So there you go. Exactly, this is exactly what we're talking about. Matt, have you had a run-in with a feline, with a wild feline? No, I can't say I have. I was, I was trying to come up with any sort of like recollection of, of this happening, but um, never sort of come across one or never been um, involved in an incident like Vicky's where I've had my sort of um, actions or, or sort of life choices altered by a potential big cat. But these are very common, these sightings of big wild cats, usually things like panthers around the UK, right? Yeah, exactly. So really, you know, the, the rumours of big wild cats on the loose somewhere in the UK, they actually go back, they go back decades and decades, but they're at least uh, have been around since the end of the Second World War. So for instance, between 1964 and 1966, a, a small village in Surrey, they logged over 100, sorry, over 340 sightings of the Surrey Puma. In fact, we actually had another sighting of a big cat somewhere else in the UK last month. And in the intervening years, there have been literally thousands and thousands of sightings. Usually there are people that would say that you know say, oh, I was out walking my dog in the countryside, or I was out, you know, whatever, driving down this country lane, and I saw this, you know, this kind of big black cat-like thing go in front of my path. Um, and you know, it was over in a flash, but it was definitely too big to be a real cat. And it's not a dog, I know what a dog looks like. And so these mystery big cats have uh, totted up lots and lots of uh, their own monikers. So we've got the beast, beast of Exmoor, the Highland Panther and the Fen Tiger. And in fact, in 1995, the government mounted an official investigation into the Beast of Bodmin, uh, which is probably the most um, uh, you know, infamous big cat in the UK. But that investigation didn't find anything. Despite this complete lack of evidence, this hasn't really stopped loads and loads of ordinary people coming across their own sightings. In fact, uh, the nature presenter, uh, uh, Claire Balding, and it's Claire Balding, she presents like food, um, uh, pet stuff and sports stuff as well, right? She's not just a nature presenter. Yeah, yeah, no, she does sports. That's it. Sport. I, I have to say, I'm like, I'm, I know so little about sport. I was like, the TV personality, Claire Balding. Um, <laughs> anyway, again, a very kind of specifically UK reference there. Basically, person on TV uh, was presenting a Radio 4 programme where she saw a dog-sized uh, black, black cat sauntering up the road. And you see this, if you read the tabloids, you see these kind of sightings all the time. The things they share in common is they tend to be big, quite muscular, black panther or leopard-like um, you know, creatures. And the other thing is that no one has been able to have any video evidence of them. 
Yeah, I don't. There's part of me that's very skeptical about sort of some of these sightings, um, like the ones that you were talking about in uh, in the Surrey village, sort of in the 1960s, where there's like 300 sightings in a couple of years. That sounds like it could be fairly credible, but um, now we're living sort of. 60 70 years later and everybody's got smartphones we've all got cameras on us all the time surely somebody must be capturing these yeah exactly i i, I completely get that because i think that in the past you imagine someone's like oh yeah i saw a i think i saw a big cat there there's a rumor it spread in the pub everyone kind of gets it nowadays when you can look up anything and there's always a definitive answer there's no room for these kind of rumors um so you're completely right so in these 60 years that people have been reporting big cat sightings there's never been a shred of really solid evidence there's been some evidence as we've got on to later but there's been no smartphone footage no cat bodies no physical or biological trace of them yet despite this the number of sightings have never slowed down so according to the british big cat society which is a group that basically you know it catalogues big cat sightings in the uk there's actually been a massive spike in new sightings during lockdown and this has really you know tapped into a new generation of big cat hunters that have taken up this mantle of um you know trying to track down these animals and rather than going down the pub and talking about them they're saying well actually let's go out and actively and try and track them down so who are today's modern big cat hunters and what are they using to try and get that crucial piece of evidence that might prove it right so the thing that you learn quite quickly about big cat hunters is that every single one like a superhero has their origin story so mike coggan who uh, runs a video and animation studio is based in dorset so his story goes back to eight years ago when he was driving down a winding country road near his home in east dorset and he saw what he describes as a black leopard and ever since he saw that black leopard and he you know he was adamant it's not a you know, it definitely wasn't a you know a dog you know at first he said it looked like a bit you know about a bit of a you know a bit like a black labrador or something but the more he looked at it he realized this is a you know a big muscular cat ever since he had that experience eight years ago he's been trying to use his video skills to pin them down and get some more precise evidence now luckily mike is obviously pretty well placed to do this because he runs a video production company so he started with 10 camera traps that he kind of set up in the you know in the dorsal area so they managed to capture some footage of deer but then some of the traps stopped working i don't know maybe there was some interference by some koala or you know or a cat or some you know animal interference so instead his company which is called grizzly invested in a thermal drone and actually they they ended up turning all of this searching into a, a um, into a documentary um, but the problem was is they still weren't coming up with any sightings and so if you talk to Coggan basically what he says is you know they're so elusive and even if you go on a you know a um you know uh you know you try and find a leopard in Africa for instance you know they're really really solitary animals right they're nocturnal they're really hard to track down so he was saying you know we're not going to find them uh looking from with camera traps you know what's going to happen is that they'll probably run in front of a taxi driver and the taxi driver's got their dash cam and that's how they'll capture them so he's much more now interested in this kind of crowdsourced approach like maybe we can find some evidence from someone that's got these you know cameras running all the time 
Anyway, another really prominent big cat hunter of the new generation is a guy called Rick Minter. So he's basically your go-to person if you want to find out about British big cats. And he has an origin story too. So his involvement came with what he says was a, a small female black leopard. He, he basically was at a business meeting, I think, in a hotel. And he was looking out the window and he says that he saw this thing and he said he saw it for about 50 seconds. And so he was absolutely clear that he'd excluded all these other possibilities. It was a cat or a dog or whatever and um, you know now he produces a fortnightly podcast um, about big cats and about the people that are trying to track them down and he's writing a book on the subject and he also says that the authorities have been interested as well because he says he's had two briefings with official countryside organisations, he didn't mention their name, um, about big cats and how to manage them although he says that these organisations never officially logged the meetings Okay so, what, what what's really going on here? C- could you sort of answer this question, Matt? Have we got big cats? Are people going to actually find them with all their technological efforts? Which, I mean, that's probably the best way you're going to have a good chance of getting them on crowdsourcing. It's a good organised approach, but come on. Well, yeah, this is the thing. And I guess it's kind of interesting that I've brought this on as a science story. But as any good scientist will tell you, you can never really prove a theory. All you can do is find evidence that either disproves that theory or evidence that supports that theory. So a lot of people say, well, if there are sightings, that's evidence of it. And if you can't It's very difficult to prove that something doesn't exist. Although we do have some evidence that suggests that the kind of, um, uh, you know, evidence we try and use to suggest they're here might not be as sturdy as some people think it was. So in 2012, the National Trust asked a geneticist, a guy called Robin Allaby, to test these wounds on deer carcasses after there's a spate of, um, you know, I was going to say murders of these of these deer, but, you know, killings of these deers that look suspiciously like they were caused by a big cat. Now, Alibi's testing found that unequivocally these were foxes. So he said, you know, we found fox DNA all over them. But since then, his genotyping service has found, um, you know, every couple of months he gets new carcasses that are sent by farmers. So interestingly, he says, occasionally we find domestic cats that have, you know, killed these animals, though nothing like a panther. And Alibi kind of suggests that there's the possibility that we've got domestic cats that maybe go feral and maybe they feel equipped to take down livestock, maybe a sheep or a goat or something like that. So it might not be a a wild escape cat from a zoo, but it could be domestic cats, you know, slightly, you know, start to get a little bit tougher once they've lived in the wild for a little bit. Now, that's not necessarily super satisfying. So to really find the answer, you might have to look within ourselves. And so, uh, you know, the writer of this story spoke to the psychologist, a guy called Christopher French, French, and he specialises in something called um, anomalistic psychology, which is basically this psychology that explains things that seem odd, you know, that are anomalies, anomalies. And he says, you know, for most people, the strongest evidence they can conceive of is their own personal experience. And this explains why people like, um, the people like I mentioned right at the beginning, these big cat investigators, they're really certain because when you perceive something, it seems really, really definite and real to you. But as French says, perception and memory can be faulty and in lots of different ways. So even, you know, our understanding of 
thinking what we saw, you know, it can be really, really inaccurate. So the brain fills in gaps. So maybe you see a rustling in the hedge and you think, well, something must have caused that. I'll imagine a creature or that will fill in gaps such as colour or dimension that actually the eye wasn't able to capture. Now, memory suffers exactly the same pitfall. So unlike a video where that gives a very accurate uh, recreation of what happens, when you remember something, what you're really doing is basing the event on memory traces that were formed at the time. But you might also be filling them in, um, you know, filling in those gaps with things like what you've heard from other people. You know, you're rationalising due to this background knowledge you have. So you kind of say, oh, well, I've heard in this era, in this area, there was this big cat. So that thing that I wasn't quite sure of, well, it must be that. And so really, what you start to find out is you can't necessarily even trust the experience of these people. However, and this may not surprise you, either of you or any of our listeners, telling these people that maybe their memories are full and they're filling in these gaps, you know, to people that are really into big cat investigating, surprisingly, that does not quite cut it. So I've got a suspicion that the mystery is going to continue for now, at least. Interesting stuff. Let us know if you've ever seen a big cat in the UK or elsewhere where it shouldn't be podcast at wired.co.uk you know i'm kind of really tempted to believe in the uk big cats matt i was always into ghost stories as a child and this feels sort of you know quite along those lines just a nice little story to to liven up the uk countryside a bit well that until they kill your sheep yeah, yeah, I, I feel like if you're a farmer, maybe you've got like a little bit more skin in the game. But for me, one of the things I've often complained about the UK, it's got really boring animals. I think your fact a couple of weeks ago, Vicky, was how... So was it, what animal is the second biggest, largest carnivore in the UK? And I was thinking at the time, oh, that's rubbish. That's a really small um, animal. It was like a vole or something. Am I remembering that right? Oh, the pine martin. Right, the pine martin. And like, I've looked up a pine martin. That's our second biggest carnivore. That's rubbish. Countries have lions. America has grizzly bear. And my thought is, you know what? Let us have these big cats, even if they don't really exist, because we need something better than the pine martin. Yeah, let us know your theories, everyone, as well. Do you think it's just domestic cats that are being mistaken for big cats or perhaps dogs? Could it be an escaped zoo animal? Could there actually be wild big cats living in the UK that have stayed undetected all this time? Love to hear it. Matt Burgess, you're going to be talking about your favourite topic this week, running. You've been giving me lots of advice over Slack, which I appreciate. And now you're sharing your wisdom with the world, or at least with the listeners of the Wired podcast. Yeah, so as you mentioned there, Vicky, um, you've been asking a lot of questions about sort of like how to um, uh, improve your running, which you've sort of taken up a lot more um, during lockdown. And I think on the podcast last week, we mentioned, or James mentioned that uh, he started enjoying running after uh, years of not liking it and sort of uh, very much sort of hating uh, the concept and process of doing it. And then during lockdown, where it's been a case of um, there's been only so much exercise you can do and so much you can leave the house. Um, both of you and many other people have taken up running a bit more or, and starting to enjoy it. So that inevitably sort of led to us discussing in the office and on Slack and uh, not in the office, on, via Zoom. Um, but 
via Zoom and on Slack. And then we ended up writing, or I ended up writing a story about sort of people that have started running um, during lockdown this week and sort of like a little bit of the sort of sports science and sort of techniques and methods uh, that they can maybe start to improve um, their running if they want to take it a bit more seriously and defining themselves, I guess, plateauing a little bit. So I, I think first things first is if you have recently started running um, and you are finding yourself in that sort of um, stage where it's getting a bit tedious, you're just doing the same route, you're going the same speed, wanting to go be a bit faster, what you should you be doing? And and that sort of comes down to setting goals, really. Uh, I know it sounds quite simple, but sort of some of the other runners and coaches that we spoke to um, said that if you want to sort of improve, you really know what you want to what you want to improve so if you've got to work out if you want to run faster if you want to run longer if you want to run a specific route if you want to get better at running up a hill um basically having a bit of an idea of why you're running is uh, is a good starting place um and then you can start to do something about it okay sure but how do i just get better i think like lots of people i only took up running in lockdown you know when the gyms closed and everything it was a bit of a new hobby for me and I've got to that stage where I can now just about do a 5K, which, you know, previously was, was out of grasp. So I'm really proud of that. But how do I get better? How, where do I go from here? How do I take things up a notch and continue my running journey? Uh, I've got good and bad news. Um, it's totally possible is the good news. But the, the bad news is that it takes probably more running and a lot more effort. Um, and there's obviously no... Um, sort of secret bullet or silver bullet or anything like that to becoming um, a lot better over a short amount of time um, so it's really sort of about consistency and training um, so even if you look at sort of like elite level athletes that are sort of the best in the world at these sorts of things a lot of their um, a lot of their skill if you want to put it that way um, is being able to do the simple things often and repeat it and keep doing the same sort of thing um, so if you started running recently you probably followed a plan Vicky did you follow uh, any any online coaching or apps or anything like that when you started or were you just out the door carefree um, I didn't follow any strict plan actually I know lots of people who have done things like couch to 5k I downloaded Strava, which is an app that can um, track how far you run and how fast and things like that. Um, there's lots of other things and, and smartwatches and stuff out there, but this one, um, you can get a free version. Um, and I basically just tried to do a little bit more week on week until I could get up to a full 5k. Yeah, and that, that's pretty much the process that um, lots of people will have followed. And then you mentioned the Couch to 5K app um, there, and that's the sort of thing that um, is the way to sort of improve. So it's having a structured plan in place, really. So if you've done a 5K and now want to do a 10K, um, you probably need to step up to doing um, slightly more runs a week, slightly longer distance, um, and really sort of follow a structured um, way of doing this. So looking at sort of some of the, the scientific literature around this, there was one study from a couple of years ago that said that new runners are more likely to get injured than those who haven't, uh, who have been running for longer. So if you've been running for a couple, two years or more, you're a bit more um, hardy, basically. You're a bit more resilient to the strain and the efforts that you are putting on your body. Um, and the study said that 
those people who follow their own training plans uh, and try to improve themselves are more likely to get injured than those runners who use one um, that's already been built for them. And that's really just down to sort of structure. And um, a lot of these plans that are out there already um, pretty much have um, the certain amount of runs you should do in a week, which are appropriate and are not to uh, not increasing what you're doing too much or too soon, which is a temptation um, if you are just sort of like uh, doing it yourself. So I'm hearing if you want to get better at running, basically run more. That, that kind of makes sense. What about if I'm specifically, you know, I've got a distance I want to run, but I want to get faster at it. Because honestly, I'm quite lazy. If I can get the run over quicker, then I'm really down for that. So how do I work on my speed? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, and really sort of like uh, a lot of training that everybody who wants to sort of like uh, take running a bit more seriously etc uh, should be broken into different types of runs so the majority of uh, people's running uh, coaches say um, should be easy runs so runs that you can do at a pace where um, you could easily have a conversation with somebody else while while you're running um, so not something that's sort of like making your lungs burn or anything like that um, but to get faster, um, you also do need to be doing faster runs as well. Uh, I know it sounds like a, a really simple thing, but um, one of the um, things about it is that there are different types of runs. Um, so you could be doing a, an interval run, which is, a, say, running really hard for 30 seconds and then resting for a minute uh, and then repeating that 10 times in the same sort of um, structure. You could be doing a hill repeat, so you could be uh, finding a, a local hill near you you and run up that 10 times um, and then sort of um, and then repeat that and having rests in between um, and there's lots of different types of workouts essentially that complement easy running and these help to build up speed and strength because you're sort of putting your body through those harder efforts that you wouldn't normally do over a 5k or a 10k um, and there's obviously other things that you can do as well such as strength training um, that you can do technique work with drills and things like that um, but essentially making sure what you can do is um, sort of very um, sort of within your limits not increasing it too much um so that's what you should do what about what you shouldn't do yeah so so i sort of hinted at it a little bit there and it's really tempting to to go out and uh, just do lots of running if you're new to this and enjoying it um you can go out and do uh like it's tempting to go out if it's nice weather to go out and do multiple runs a week when you may have been doing one or two um, and stepping up to four or five uh, in one week when you've not been doing much is going to increase your chances of injury. So it's really about sort of like gradual progression, getting slightly, uh, doing slightly more each week um, rather than sort of doing, doing less and making sure that when you are doing more, you are doing uh, a good quantity of that sort of an easy pace as I said uh, but also uh, resting and recovery is important as well it's really key for the body to be given time um, to recover from the activity like running is really hard and it puts a lot of strain on areas of your body um, that it wouldn't normally um, they wouldn't normally have from day-to-day -day life so allowing yourself time to recover to get a good amount of sleep uh, taking on food, drink after runs, after you've sort of obviously burnt up more energy and become dehydrated. Um, they sound like simple things, but um, they recovering properly can essentially just help you to um, run better next time and to avoid injury and to become an overall uh, stronger runner and athlete. Great advice. I shall be taking that on. 
I learned the hard way this week, one important piece of advice actually, to always remember to stretch before and after a run because I forgot to this week and now my legs are really tight and yeah, not going to be running for a little bit, I think, because of that. Yeah, that, that is a that is a crucial point as well. Yeah, making sure you're warming up properly and cooling down um, and making sure um, that if if you've done a particularly hard run, for instance, um, so if you try to go a lot faster, try to set a new PB, um, then your muscles will have created greater quantities of lactic acid and sort of other byproducts of running that will give you that sort of uh, delayed onset uh, muscle soreness that you're experiencing, Vicky. But that can be diminished yeah. by stretching. Yeah, I'm sure I won't do it again. Um, having learned the lesson the hard way. We've got some feedback from listeners this week. Nathan writes in uh, and he says, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts how the COVID crisis will affect car ownership in the UK. So Nathan bought a car towards the end of lockdown. He had considered buying one for a while, but issues with parking, congestion and the environment previously stopped him. He thinks what tipped the balance was the country starting to open up, but being told not to use public transport. He says a number of people I know have also bought cars recently and the dealer I bought the car off said they were very busy. This was the first week of them being allowed to open. I wonder if this is just anecdotal or whether there will now be a surge in car ownership. It's a really interesting question, Nathan, and it's one we've actually talked about in the office or in the remote office as well. It does look like there was a bit of a run on car dealerships immediately when they, when they opened, but I couldn't find any really solid data on levels of car ownership changing. And I think maybe it's a little bit too early to tell, certainly in the long term, what the trend will be. I think there's lots of things at play here. On the one hand, as Nathan says, people may be put off public transport because of uh, COVID-19. And so a car suddenly might seem more attractive. On the other, more people are working from home, so maybe they would see less of need for a car, especially if this turns out to be a long-term trend in the workplace. There's also more streets being pedestrianised and more bicycle infrastructure being added, so that could affect how people choose to move as well. Mats, what do you think? Has lockdown made you, either of you think about getting a car? I think that lockdown has really made me see the value of a car because the idea that you could just get out of the city, go to some countryside and, you know, all be kind of in your self-contained bubble. Very, very, um, that seems kind of attractive. It'd be a really, really easy way to get out, out of the city. I would say, I mean, I've not driven for a very long time, so I think that'd be quite a bad idea for me to get a car. Um, not least, no parking space. So that's, you know, there's practical reasons why I wouldn't really get a car. But I did get a bike, like, you know, many thousands of people during lockdown. And I've really found that's, you know, opened up my, you know, it's opened up London to me. And it's been a great way to kind of find out a bit more of the city, you know, go to places I wasn't usually going to. And so I can definitely see the attraction that a car is basically doing that at a slightly wider scale. Although for me personally, not super practical living uh, you know, in a big city. I would, uh, yeah, I would tend to agree. Uh, briefly thought about it, then realised that I haven't driven for a long time. Uh, but anecdotally, I do know a few people living in London that have uh, not owned cars and now now do own cars, uh, just so they can sort of travel a bit more um, during sort of these restricted times. We'll be watching that trend. Obviously, it has big implications for the environment as well. We've been pushing so long to reduce the number of cars on the road. Could this be a step backwards in that respect? Um, I'm sure we'll be, we'll be looking at that as uh, more data comes out and as things start to settle and we see where we end up um, as COVID continues and eventually post-COVID, although we don't really know when that will be at the moment. 
Matt Burgess, Michaela writes in. Yeah, Michaela writes in to say that they're a long-time listener and first-time emailer and they enjoyed the discussion around streaming services and how they're affecting artists, uh, but said that the changes should not be how we get our music, uh, but look higher and help artists uh, over ownership of their own content. Um, Michaela pointed out that there are, or there is a company in Scotland uh, that is using distributed ledgers, essentially sort of blockchain technology that is um, creating automatic rights for management and artist profile hubs to so artists can control their songs and where they're being used and sh- and how music can be shared uh, to help them sort of like take a bit more control over their business. Um, we'll, I guess we'll see if that sort of thing catches on. But uh, good point that there are lots of sort of technologies being developed to, to try and tackle these issues other than the ones we uh, talked about last week. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point that it's not just the streaming services that, that affect the way artists get paid. It's also, you know, the contracts that artists have with record labels and how they negotiate with the streaming services as well. So a lot of artists have very little control over what happens with their music and the business of that. Great point, Michaela. Matt Reynolds, Josh Earn writes in. That is right. So Joshan says, I've been listening to the Wide podcast for a few months now and I am a big fan. So thank you very much for listening, Joshan. Um, Last week, the participants were discussing the way they were dealing with lockdown and I am surprised that none of them mentioned cooking. During the past few months, I've made some slow dishes like curry, lasagna, pizza, birthday cake, that sounds like a big meal all in one go, and an inedible batch of cookies, none of which I had made before. It required a lot of focus and was very rewarding in the end. Um, what, have, have any of you been cooking? I've, I've been, I really went through a period of enthusiasm for cooking and was like, oh, it's great. I can make my own lunches and I, I can put so much more time into it. And now I'm like, oh, well, what's in the freezer? I can't be bothered to think about it again. I feel like I've really passed the um, envelope of enthusiasm. What about, what about you, Vicky? I'm still still enthusiastic about cooking and I think it's just having the extra time at home um, and not having to commute into work and things like that it gives me a little extra time on a weeknight to put together dishes that normally I might just write off as a bit too complex or a bit too time consuming. I've also got onto the baking trend so I've been doing a bit of that making some bread some cakes some biscuits things like that again something I've always enjoyed um, but maybe previously I'd you know I'd spend an evening going out to see a friend or something and have been doing less of that in lockdown which has freed up that hobby time which has been quite nice um yeah i think cooking is a great great skill to to improve on when you've got that time at home i'm just going to ruin that now by saying that um i've I've been doing lots of cooking and sort of like just very healthy meals, but nothing too adventurous. Haven't really sort of, I don't know whether it's because the shops are uh, like the shopping experience is a bit uh, obviously weird. And sort of during the sort of severest periods of our lockdown, you could only uh, sort of have one person in there at a time from one household um, and shopping became a little bit more. I didn't do much sort of extravagant shopping in terms of like looking for new ingredients or stuff like that. It was very much a bit routine. Um, so yeah, I've nothing, uh, I can't really sort of, claim to have added to my skill set in that way let us know how you've been handling lockdown the the email address is the same as it always was podcast at wired.co.uk feel free to write in about any of the stories we've had on the show this week or uh, or anything else really we, we like hearing from the outside world especially in these times and before we go we would like to invite you to join us for the next wired virtual briefing On August the 5th at 1pm BST, Wired Editor-in-Chief Greg Williams will be hosting a conversation with political broadcaster and author Nina Schick 
on the rise of fake news and the disturbing impact this has had on how we think, how we behave and what we believe. You can register and join that for free by visiting bit.ly slash wired virtual. Wired virtual is all in capital letters. It is case sensitive. So make sure you do that. So that's bit.ly slash wired virtual. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you all for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.